Radio. Knowledge Without Wisdom, a talk by Stephen Schwartz at the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium. Uh, and so here's what I'd like you to remember from my talk, and that is that it's time to bring wisdom back to the campus. That's my takeaway message. And I'd like to start with a, a story, and it's, um, may I set the first slide, please? I've only got four slides. I never use slides because they never work, but today it's going to be This story is about a lady called Julie Lloyd. That's Julie. And you can see with her gray hair and her kindly smile, she looks like someone's sweet grandmother. But looks, as they say, can be deceiving because according to the eagle-eyed, ever-alert security staff at Gatwick Airport in London, Julie wasn't a kindly grandmother. She was a potential terrorist, a woman who was brazenly trying to smuggle a gun aboard a flight from Gatwick to Toronto. Well, maybe the word smuggle is not quite right. You see, the weapon, the gun in question, was in her handbag, the handbag that she submitted for security scanning. And gun might not be quite right either, because the gun was six centimeters long, it was made of plastic, and it was being held in the arms of a toy soldier. This is a picture, next slide please. This is a picture of what the security staff discovered in her handbag. Now, she said, they said, well, we really can't have this on board a plane, it's a weapon. <laughs> Julie had bought this as a present. She had visited the signalers. She was in England visiting friends. They were framing on their She and her husband had retired to Canada. And she bought this as a gift. He was a retired British Army signaler. And she brought this, thought he would really enjoy it having it home. But the security staff wouldn't let her take it aboard the plane. And so she remonstrated with them. She said, well, it's made out of plastic. And it has no moving parts. And it doesn't even have a trigger. <laughs> and here's the next piece, um, picture of Julie pointing this out. <laughs> Taking it apart. Oops, it's disappeared from the screen. It's not um, But you think security staff could see this for themselves. You know, that clearly <laughs> this was not a But they were, they were pretty adamant. Now, I know you're a very genteel and, and forgiving audience, and I thought, just in case you had wanting to give the security staff the benefit of the doubt, I thought I'd show you the next slide. This is a real British soldier, <laughs> and that's a real guy. Now, if you look carefully, you can probably see one or two significant differences between that gun and the gun that wasn't permitted to go aboard the plane. That's all the pictures I have. <laughs> Nevertheless, the security staff were adamant she could not bring this aboard, and so she had to leave without it. Well, she was still fuming when she got to Toronto. Um, and so she called her friends back in England and told them the story, and she sent them the photos that I've just showed to you. And the friends took these photos and the story to the editor of the Daily Mail, 
those of you who are familiar with British journalism will know that the Daily Mail is a tabloid newspaper with the largest circulation of any newspaper in the UK. And the editor gave this job to a journalist who then went to Gatwick to interview the head of security. The head of security, you know, going over the story, agreed with the journalist when he said, and I quote, that the story sounds incredibly stupid. But he went on to say, and I quote again, rules are rules and they must be obeyed. Now, I had my own little run-in with the rules and rules argument and when I returned to live in Sydney after many years abroad, um, I went to the to visit the office of Medi, uh, Medicare Private Medi, yeah, that's what it's called, isn't it? Yeah. Um, to because I had uh, to reactivate my health insurance. I said to the clerk who was there, "I've been living in England for the last six years, but now I'm back, and I would like to reactivate my health insurance." And she said, "No problem." She said, "That's fine." All I need is evidence that you have returned to Australia. <laughs> so I said, well, we're in Sydney, and Sydney is in Australia, and I'm sitting here right in front of you. Does this not provide sufficient evidence for you to infer that I am indeed here in Australia? And she said, no, not really. So I offered to let her pinch me. But she said, no, no, unless I see a stamp and a passport, uh, which Australian immigration don't do, um, or a boarding pass or a luggage tag, um, then there's no insurance for you. Uh, so you, you might think, well, these are just silly stories, right? They make you laugh, they're risable, and they don't do any real harm. And I suppose that's true, but not always true. Sometimes real harm can, can happen. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that. Um, it was about a boy who was a teenage boy who went on a hike in the bush outside of Sydney and got lost. This is a few years ago. Um, he was tired, he was dehydrated, he was exhausted, but his mobile phone still worked and he was able to ring the emergency number. Um, and he pleaded with them to send some help. He was lost. This was in the Blue Mountains. Um, and the emergency um, rules by which the operators um, have to uh, you know, work on the emergency number is that the callers have got to provide either a street address or the name of a cross street. And so they asked him for a street address on the end of the cross street, and he said no, he was lost in the, in the bush in the Blue Mountains. Um, there was no addresses, there was no cross street, there were no streets of any kind. Um, but he said no, they had to have that before they could send him help. He ran off, he ran back actually several times, but he got the same answer uh, each time. And so help was delayed. Um, by the time help was finally found, it was too late, this boy died. Uh, and he, he, didn't, he didn't make it. Um, and so the, this high-bound high bound, um, adherence to rule following took what was a dangerous situation and turned it into a deadly situation. Um, there was a coroner's inquest at the end of this to, you know, to see what lessons could be learned. And the emergency services manager agreed at that inquest 
that it appeared that the operators seemed to be, in his words, fixated on the idea of a street address or so on. But he defended them because, he said, they were only doing what they were trained to do. Now, he didn't realize it. A supervisor probably didn't realize it. But he had put his finger on one of the oldest controversies in education, and that is the difference between, well, in, in teaching in general, the difference between training someone and honing their mind, training and wisdom. He had put his finger right on that difference between acquiring technical knowledge to do a job and becoming wise. The, the airport security staff, who refused to distinguish a toy gun from a real one, and the insurance clerk, who refused to accept my corporeal presence right in front of me <laughs> as evidence that I was actually in Australia, and the emergency call center operators who insisted on asking a boy lost in the bush for a street address, all of those people, every one of them, had been carefully trained. Every one of them knew the required protocols, and every one of them understood the system, and they stuck to the rules by which they were taught. They had the necessary knowledge. They all had the technical knowledge, but they had no idea of how to apply it. They had no wisdom. They did not know how to apply it. Now, in Australia, it's common to hear about skill shortages. Apparently, there is this tremendous skill shortage out in the country, there are not enough personal trainers, whatever, out there. And we have to increase the skill level of our population in order to compete in the modern knowledge economy. As an aside, don't you just love the term knowledge economy? Is there an economy somewhere out there based on ignorance? <laughs> don't let me digress. It's, it's not enough to train people to follow a set of rules. Real-world problems are not like that. They're rarely cut and dry. Um, they're ambiguous. They're ill-defined. You can't cover everything in training. It's not possible to anticipate anything that might happen in any contingency. A wise person knows how to apply the rules. A wise person knows when to make an exception to the rules. Unfortunately, in Australia, and maybe everywhere really, wisdom's got an image problem. A serious one. As far as the popular media are concerned, wisdom is the province of ghost, whis ghost whisperers and extraterrestrials, think uh, Mr. Spock, the Vulcan, or wizened kung fu sages, the body is the arrow, the spirit is the bow grasshopper. Wise people, they're portrayed as old and alien and weird. Um, and also bookish and risk-averse and unemotional. No wonder their pearls of wisdom are routinely ignored by the impetuous young. You know, youth thirsts for new experiences. It's in their nature to take chances and follow their hearts. Wisdom, well, wisdom just gets in the way. Fools rush in where wise men never go, Queen Elvis. But wise men never fall in love. So how are they to know? Now you think universities would have a different idea, because after all, they're in the wisdom business. Right? You'd think that, but you'd be wrong. 
every type of knowledge that you can imagine. Massage therapy, homeopathy, circus performing. It is found on one campus or another. But wisdom hardly gets mentioned anywhere. Now, of course, it wasn't always like this. Wisdom, at least some religious form of wisdom, was century to universities for, you know, for eons, right down to the days of saintly John Henry Newman. But wisdom is no longer on the agenda. Now, academics, many of them, were distressed by the demise of wisdom. And what do they do when academics are distressed? They write books. <laughs> and in the last few years, there has been a plethora of worthy books, each lamenting the decline of higher education. In fact, there are now so many books the decline of higher education has become a literary genre all the time. Cookery <laughs> <laughs> or mystery books or romances. Yeah, I've got no doubt Amazon's going to offer a box set for Christmas. You know, the end of the university as we know it, set of books. And of course, they'll be available as e-books. Now, what, what's in these books? Well, the authors chart the symptoms as they see it of decay. More and more vocational courses, fewer and fewer humanities courses, and generations of students who leave the university not one bit wiser than the day they entered it. The leitmotif of this academic declinism literature is money. Most of the time, too little money, but believe it or not, sometimes too much money. So in one of these books, Universities in the Marketplace, former Harvard president Derek Bob talks about the problems, the latter, too much money. He argues that excessive commercialization in every single part of the university has corrupted traditional academic values. And here's an example. The free and open exchange of research of data and discoveries, free and open exchange. There's a bedrock academic value, if there ever was one. But what happens when that comes against the imperatives of commercialization, where patents and secrecy are pretty important if you're going to extract the value of a scientific discovery? So you've got a traditional academic value of free and open exchange of information, then you've got a business imperative of keeping things secret and don't telling anyone about it. Which one do you think wins in the modern university? Well, I can tell you, it will be the second one, always. Bach also decried conflicts of interest that arise when an academic becomes an entrepreneur. Now, I do think that my, my job, I was a, as a culture yesterday, a vice chancellor of three universities, but before that I was a dean of medicine. And it may surprise you to know that scientists discovering a new drug or working on the development of a new drug have sometimes been known to suppress findings that perhaps fail to support the efficacy of their drug. So money corrupts, and sometimes it corrupts quite a lot. David Kirk, I'm going to go through a lot of these books in the declinism, but David Kirk's book, which I quite like, Shakespeare, Einstein, and the Bottom Line, um, notes that the impetus to make money has elevated subjects that have an immediate financial gain, subjects like commerce, for example, over less bankable subjects like the humanities. 
in saving higher education in the age of money, Anthony Dangerfield claims that the traditional role of money in universities has been turned upside down. Families used to go out to try to find the best education they could afford, the best education their money can buy. Now they look for the education that will bring the most money. Now, I should stop here for a moment and say this, this is totally different to the traditional views about education. From its ancient origins until very, very recently, education, or certainly educators, used to define their mission in moral terms, almost always. Um, they followed Plato and they said that education makes good people and good people act nobly. And the purpose of education is exactly that. But with the decline in the influence of religion in the last century, the widespread, hugely widespread acceptance of moral relativism, even an idiot nihilism, universities were forced almost to abandon their moral aims. So building character, inculcating ethical values, the things that people talked about yesterday, the enculturation, the passing down of culture, all those things are gone. Okay? All the time-honored purposes of a higher education are no longer really even given lip service. But that doesn't mean they didn't look around for another purpose. Universities did. And the one that they found, I think, reflects the modern, modern society's major concern, and that's making money. So modern universities actually go out, hire economists to produce papers to show how much money they make. Well, fatuous thing, I mean, hilarious sometimes. So the University of X makes $4,700,382,012 last year, for and that's its value. Um, for the economy. You know that um, museums are starting to do that as well, and uh, even the Sydney Symphony. Um, so they look to see how much money they produce for the national accounts. And the universities have put so much emphasis on this in their arguments, in their advertising, in their submissions to um, inquiries. They put so much emphasis on their financial benefits that our political leaders have come to believe that universities exist for no other reason. So it's not so much the politicians' fault, that's how the universities have sold themselves. Look, we're here to make money for you, and for the graduates, and for the country. So the politicians said, oh, I believe you, that must be what you're for. So we're now firmly in the age of money, in which higher education is essentially judged by how much money it makes. And just not just for its graduates, but for the country. University research, which someone earlier said was um, conducted in order to understand ourselves and our place in the universe, is now evaluated on its impact. And one of those impact measurements is how much money it could make. Subjects that focus on self-understanding, philosophy, for example, are marginalized in favor of those that can easily be translated into cash. Um, now, to defend themselves, supporters of those humanities and other subjects have, mistakenly, I think, taken to arguing that, hey, we make money too. It's not just science and medicine and engineering. The humanities make money too. I'll give you an example. Take Shakespeare. Shakespeare has never been more popular in history than he is today. The bar and the Bard is the epitome of what is known as a creative industry. Tourists flocked to Stratford-upon-Avon, 
they spend up big in the souvenir shops and in the bars, and they buy, stay in local hotels. Plays are performed around the world and in live and in cinema versions to huge audiences. Even copies of Shakespeare's sonnets sell millions every year. Even the wine sold in the interval at the Globe Theatre in London brings in tons of money. See, we make money too. All of this is entirely true. There's just one tiny little problem with it. None of this has anything to do with the value of Shakespeare. Now, I know it's, said, it's been said many times before, but it bears repeating. We seem to know the price of everything and the value, I'm using value correctly here, and the value of nothing. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I am not against getting rich. I agree with uh, screen siren Mae West, who was once quoted as saying, I've been rich and I've been poor, and believe me, baby, rich is better. <laughs> whenever, whenever you, you need to have the money in order to follow your mission. Um, as a former vice chancellor, I know as well as anyone that money is the means by which universities achieve their mission. Uh, and, by the way, the church, our, our parish priest, whenever anybody would ask him, why is the church always asking for money? You know, why do you always need money? He said, no margin, no mission, he said. Uh, and I think same thing's true for university. But, surely, first thing is you have to have a mission. Otherwise, universities become organizations, institutions of means with no ends. So, what should the vision of a university be in this coming world? Well, in her book, Not for Profit, why Democracy Needs the Humanities, Martha Nussbaum argues that the mission of a university is, or at least it should be, to prepare students for democratic citizenship. Democracy makes severe demands on its citizens. Rather than simply defer to authority, citizens of a democracy need to be able to weigh arguments, to balance them, to decide things for themselves. They need to be able to look at the evidence, express their positions clearly. Now, if this is done correctly in a university, the opportunity to debate different ideas, um, it enhances mutual respect as well and understanding. Students learn that just because someone has a different view from them doesn't make them evil or stupid. And, and indeed, Nussbaum argued that this kind of empathy, seeing things from various positions, is actually one of the goals of higher education, seeing the world through various eyes, envisaging distant times and distant places. She called these things the sympathetic imagination that allows us to feel in touch with lives at a distance. Nussbaum argues that by aiming just for skills rather than for wisdom, that higher education has become trivialized in our time. This is an American one. Anthony Cronin has agrees. His book's called Education's End, Why Our Colleges and Universities Have Given Up on the Meaning of Life. And Cronin alleges that the humanities have kind of lost their way in part because they've been trying to justify themselves financially, which I've already mentioned, but also in part, and maybe this is a more important thing, because they've been trying to emulate the sciences. They've been seeking to find objective facts. They've been aspiring to value-free knowledge. 
Now, Crowman blames this on a combination of political correctness and postmodernism. By the way, what do you get when you cross a postmodernist philosopher with a gangster? Anybody know? You get someone who makes you an offer you can't understand. <laughs> anyway, he blames political correctness and postmodernism that's made academics wary of making judgments, of judging a book or a thought or an idea to be better or, God forbid, better than some <coughs> others. But just stay away from making judgments. They don't, uh, they're afraid to do that. And yet, as citizens in a democracy, graduates are constantly asked to make judgments. On juries, for example, every time they vote, which in Australia seems to be every six months or so, um, a good education won't tell graduates what judgments to make. But it might help them learn how to gain, gather together the relevant facts, to analyze arguments, and to reach sound conclusions. But Cronman goes actually a step further than that. He believes universities should also be trying in some way to help students find meaning in their lives. Now his prescription for that is a thorough reading of the great books of philosophy and literature and history. Now, of course, only the congenitally foolhardy would try to offer a list of those books, which is probably why I once did that, <laughs> um, but we won't go into that here. Um, one of the things I noticed in this um, literature of academic declinism is quite interesting. In a supposedly secular age, souls loom large in the literature of academic declinism. The Lost Soul of Higher Education by Alan Trecker is one such book. Harry Lewis, Dean of uh, Arts at, ha at uh, Harvard, Excellence Without a Soul. These are two recent examples. Now, I've been hanging around universities for 50 years or so, and I do not believe I've ever heard a fellow academic utter the word soul. Not once. Or certainly not in connection with the university learning. And yet soul is really the right word, because our universities, in some ways, have made a Faustian bargain. Like the scholar in Goethe's play, <coughs> they've traded away their souls. And I have to tell you, such transactions are very rarely win-win propositions. And today's universities are mainly concerned with money, as I said. <coughs> Now, we've also heard that they're vo vocational. They, they train students for a career. And I, I certainly agree uh, with Philippa. I was a dean of medicine. I don't see anything wrong with training students for a career. In fact, a good career, um, a fulfilling career, is an important part of a good life. So I think it's quite an important job. Um, but while we're teaching students the state of their particular art, who's looking after the state of their hearts? And that's something that universities haven't been very good at. Um, and I want to paraphrase John Ruskin. The highest reward for a university education is not necessarily what you become or what, what you get for it. The highest reward for a university education is not the job you get or the money you make or things like that. The highest reward is what kind of a person you become by it. And we have a, I think we have an obligation and 
it's a good job to teach students how to get ready for a career. But we also have a duty to at least help them or point them in the direction of thinking about what kind of people they want to be. In fact, these two educational goals of career and, and self-understanding, I think they're actually inextricable. They're tied together. Um, I don't think anyone would argue that a deep knowledge of philosophy or the history of medicine would make you any better at, if you were a surgeon, at removing a diseased prostate. But it might deepen your empathy. It might improve your understanding of what constitutes a high quality of life. And this might determine whether you decide to do that surgery in the first place. And it's not just doctors who could benefit from a broader education. Studying drama would not have helped the financiers uh, develop the complicated financial derivatives. The financiers who developed the complicated financial derivatives uh, turned the world into a financial crisis. They may not have changed, but if they had a better familiarity with Faust, maybe they would have thought twice about the consequences of what they were doing. Being able to quote Shelley will not help politicians get elected, especially not in Australia. But studying Ozymandias might make them more humble about, and maybe more thoughtful about their accomplishments. I see a lot of raised eyebrows here. <clears throat> a generation of graduates familiar with the great works of history and philosophy and literature. What a wonderful vision. But is reading, will reading alone, make somebody wise? Well, you're correct, I think. Reading by itself probably won't make someone wise. Experience is also required. As Odysseus learned in his journey back to Ithaca, some important lessons can only ever be learned the hard way, through bitter experience. And nothing's changed, you know? Youth starts out with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and with experience, they eventually come to appreciate the Delphic prescription of nothing to excess. But there's a problem here as well. Experience alone won't make anyone wise either. It's no more likely than just reading. The lessons of life are only available to those who are prepared to learn them. Pasteur famously said, Louis Pasteur famously said, that chance favors the prepared mind. And I think the job of university academics is to take those words seriously. We do need to go beyond just utilitarian, vocational, uh, money-oriented training. Think about it. Life, <coughs> death, beauty, courage, loyalty. All of these things are omitted from our modern curriculum. And yet, when it comes to sum up our lives, Nothing else ever really matters to anybody. Each year on Ash Wednesday, the priest admonishes the faithful to remember that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. It's a salutary reminder of what we've all got in store for us. And in the meantime, like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, we spend our years searching for some sort of meaning in our lives. Now, it's really easy, it's very easy, to fall into the pit of nihilism. 
It's easy to consider life nothing more than a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, and signifying nothing. But, before we let our students reach this conclusion, we should at least try to provide them with the intellectual foundation that they might need to make that kind of judgment. In Choruses from the Rocks, T.S. Eliot asks, where is the wisdom that we've lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge that we've lost in information? Knowledge is not enough. Information is not enough. The security guards at Gatwick, the health insurance agent in Sydney, the operators on the emergency phone line who uttered a street name before they could send any help, they all had the knowledge. They were all taught very carefully. They were doing what they were trained to do. And you know what? They probably also had the moral will to do the right thing. I didn't think any of them came to work in the morning saying, I don't want to do a good job, I don't want to help people, I don't want to achieve it. What they lacked was the moral skill. They lacked wisdom. And without wisdom, knowledge and information are pretty well useless. And sometimes, as we've seen, they can even be dangerous. Mahatma Gandhi knew this. He warned us to be on guard against science without the humanities. Politics without principle, knowledge with no attention to character, wealth without work, commerce without morality, pleasure without conscience, and worship without sacrifice. Now, it's not easy for an institution like a university to go against the modern utilitarian money-oriented flow, but really they have to try. As author, the American author Flannery O'Connor once said, you have to push as hard as the age that pushes against you. And that's why I say, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to bring wisdom back to campus. Thank you. That was Stephen Schwartz with Knowledge Without Wisdom. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium on the theme, Liberal Education, Restoring the Notion of Education as the Basis for Living the Good Life, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.